and the American economy was wholly dependent on slavery. Yet, in a terrible irony, his elders seemed content to let this state of things, from which they all benefited, continue. No, they were not to be trusted. He must try the experiment for himself. By the time Thoreau built his house on Walden Pond, at the edge of town, he had come of age among a circle of radical intellectuals called transcendentalists, for their belief in higher ideas that transcended daily life. Emerson was their leader. He had moved to Concord while Thoreau was at Harvard, class of thirty-seven. Back home Thoreau found his new neighbor declaring America's intellectual independence, even as his own household had become a hotbed of anti-slavery activism. Thoreau joined the new revolution, but by 1844 he was less certain that Emerson, now his mentor, had all the answers. The dilemma that pressed upon him was how to live the American Revolution not as dead history, but as a living experience that could overturn, and keep overturning, hide-bound convention and comfortable habits. Moving to Walden Pond thus had a double purpose. It offered a writer's retreat where Thoreau could follow his calling as spiritual seeker, philosopher, and poet. And it offered a public stage on which he could dramatize his one-person revolution in consciousness, making his protest a form of performance art. In writing Walden, Thoreau encouraged his readers to try the experiment of life for themselves, rather than inheriting its terms from others, including himself. When he returned from Walden and became, once again, a working member of a large family in town, he tried to bring into the heart of workaday America his belief in life as a quest toward higher truth. Thoreau is often said to have turned to nature but what he actually turned to was, more exactly, the commons, spaces that, back then, were still open to everyone. Woods, fields and hilltops, ponds and blueberry thickets, rivers, meadows, trails up nearby mountains, the long open beaches on the Atlantic shore. Nearly all his writings use landforms and watersheds to explore the commons, expanding our shared nature and intellectual heritage until it touches the cosmos itself. When Thoreau sailed on the Concord and Merrimack rivers, he traveled the deep stream of time. When he walked the shore of Cape Cod, he dabbled his toes in a wild ocean stretching around the globe. When he stood on the shoulder of Mount Katahdin, he breathed the thin, chill air of a planet in stellar space. This viewpoint, deep time, planetary space, structured Thoreau's thinking from his Harvard years onward. He read at least six languages. To him, literature was world literature, beginning with the written word itself, Homer, Virgil, the Bible, the ancient scriptures of India and China, Old English poetry, on through the latest in German philosophy and science, French histories of the New World, England's most advanced romantic poetry, and Scotland's most vigorous prose. Thoreau filled dozens of notebooks with extracts from hundreds of volumes, creating his own working library. Poetry, history, science, anthropology, travel, and exploration. 
His ferocious curiosity meant the least detail in his own backyard could speak to him of faraway times and places. Farmers working their fields evoked Virgils, Georgics. Arctic explorers helped him analyze winter in New England. Irish laborers showed him the Bhagavad Gita in the waters of Walden. Through the 1840s and 1850s, Thoreau's commitment to social activism deepened as he linked the actions of his northern neighbors to the perpetuation of slavery in the South, a connection that led to his famous acts of protest, his night in jail for non-payment of taxes, his essay, Civil Disobedience, his furious denunciation of slavery in Massachusetts, his passionate support for John Brown's attempted insurrection. When death stilled his voice just after the onset of the Civil War, Thoreau's friends mourned not only him,